Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Hello, and welcome to A Million Other Choices. Thank you for listening today. I have a special episode for you. This week, well, actually a few weeks ago, it's just being aired this week, I teamed up with Melissa and Christy from Buried Motives, another Alberta-based podcast, to bring you a case that I have not covered. But you might be very interested in hearing it because I found it quite a fascinating case or really cases. Now, if you are interested, I will be telling Taylor's story to Melissa and Christy on their Thursday's episode as well this week. So you might want to check that out. We kind of swapped shows for a week and we had a ton of fun doing it. So Christy and Melissa of Buried Motives bring us the MacArthur murders. me a little bit about um, buried motives like what kind of format you guys use and what kind of, how you choose your cases and just how you guys how it works for you guys so our focus we really wanted to focus on the motives that's why okay. we're called buried yeah. motives because mm-hmm. we always are like how can somebody do that why would mm-hmm. somebody do that 
sometimes I sit on the fence because I often, and this is why your perspective, Kim, is so interesting to me is because sometimes I actually sit on the fence and go, are we doing justice to our victims? Like, is it okay to tell their stories over and over again? But I feel that as we dig into all of these crime scenes and go over the evidence and learn why these people have committed these crimes, I feel that it's another way that we can look at society and do better. Yeah, about how we can prevent the more podcasts and, and news coverage you get for your story. It, it, it keeps that person sort of around and alive and, and makes people understand and, and know. So I think getting to the bottom of how that happened, I think so many of them could be prevented um, had there been some earlier interventions. So each week, one of you um, brings a story that or a case that you've researched and and you talk about it. Yep. So each week, so we decide on our cases months and months ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than the name of the person and the general gist of the crime, we don't tell each other anything else. And then on the day that we get to get together and record, that's when we share that story with the other one. I don't know what Melissa's going to tell me on her week. And so I get to hear it alongside the listeners. I picked this case and I had never heard about it. And it was, his name is Bruce MacArthur and I had never heard about him. And it was actually, my husband was like, Oh, you should this guy. And he was telling me a little bit about it. And I was like, what, (laughs) how have I never heard of this guy? And so then I started researching and it was really a crazy case. And so we, since we're Canadian podcasters, we wanted our first case to be something from Canada. And let's be honest, Christy, you wanted the shock value of that this case or Bruce MacArthur, he grows up in my hometown. So the high schools that he attends, all of the schools that he attends are the ones I attended as a kid. Yeah, I did want to surprise Melissa with that. (laughs) And it's surprising because this I don't feel like it was very highly publicized. Because a lot of our listeners said they had never heard about this case. And I'm it's kind of shocking that it wasn't more publicized because it is, you know, a fairly recent case. It is a fairly recent case. He was only arrested in 2018. And we'll talk about it or Christy will get into it during the case. But part of that may be because of his victims. He didn't fit your standard serial killer profile. Yeah, he could literally be like your grandfather or your brother. By looking at him, you wouldn't think he could be a murderer. Not only a murderer, but dismember people, which is so disturbing. There's dismemberment. There's dismemberment. There is, yeah. And the way he disposes of his bodies is particularly shocking. Well, when you say grandfather, like, most serial killers are like, when I pick, you kind of picture them like Ted Bundy, like in that 30-year-old white guy range. Yeah, we'll get into that during this case, but he is old when he's caught. And so there's a lot of speculation about when he actually began. So we're only knowing, like, police only know about the murders that he committed later in life. But there is speculation that he could have been murdering for decades before and gone unnoticed. So he could have way more victims than the ones we're going to cover today. Because it is so unusual for somebody to start murdering or for a serial killer to start murdering that late in life. Yeah, right. Yeah. Christy's going to tell you a little bit about his background. Okay, so Bruce MacArthur was born on October 5th, 1951. 
His full name was Thomas Donald Bruce MacArthur, but he went by Bruce. He was born in Lindsay, Ontario, Canada. He was raised on a farm in Argyle near Woodville in the Kawartha Kawartha Lakes region. Thanks, Mel. (laughs) He was from a very conservative community and had super religious parents. However, his parents were from different religions, and this would cause a lot of fights between them. His mom was Irish Catholic and his father was Scottish Presbyterian. His parents would argue about religion and Bruce would side with his mother. Siding with his mom increased the wedge between him and his dad. His father was super strict and Bruce later thought that his father sensed his homosexuality. And that added to his harshness towards Bruce. So he was really rough on him. He had a hard time actually accepting that he was gay as well because it was not accepted as quote unquote normal in rural Ontario at that time. In fact, it was even against the law when he was growing up. His parents fostered troubled children. So by the neighbors, his family was known as good people. They just took in all of these children or troubled children and provided a sanctuary for them. Mm -hmm. So like we said, his childhood at one time. Yeah. Up to 10. (laughs) It is my parents fostered and yeah, a 10, 10 children would be a lot at one time. I I couldn't, I barely handled the two I had. Right? It's rural Ontario. Yeah. yeah okay. In the 50s. Yep. <laughs> they went outside true. to play and in the I morning. Yep. Yeah. Be home by dark. <laughs> His childhood isn't typical of a lot of of a lot of the serial killers who are abused and tortured as kids. Which yeah. like we said we find so fascinating. So Brad Hunter, a reporter from the Toronto Sun, compared Bruce to quote a taupe paint job in a suburban living room, which is so hilarious. <laughs> yeah, so basic and boring. You know, he's like the color taupe. There yeah, is really yeah. nothing that stuck out about him at all. Yeah, beige MacArthur. That's yeah. right. He did not fit the stereotype. So Bruce attended a one-room schoolhouse just outside of Woodville, which Melissa knows that place really well. I do. Yeah. I've passed it several times. And he was known as the teacher's pet, and he was a self-proclaimed teacher's pet. He was proud of it. He was all about the rules. Classmates in interviews said that Bruce would never join in with them when they were doing things, when they were getting into trouble, but instead, he would be happy to tattle on them. So he was a proud tattletale. It was noted that he wasn't like the other boys. Uh, Recently, one of our listeners contacted us. And she wanted to tell us that she had attended grade school with Bruce and that she recalled one of his performances of Puff the Magic Dragon to be particularly moving. His voice made such an impression on her that she has never forgotten it. And when she reached out to us after she heard the case, she made the comment that it was so strange how such an angelic voice would come from such an evil person. Oh, wow. I need to see a picture of this guy. Do you have pictures of him on your uh, yeah, Facebook? Yeah, on our Facebook. Check it out. Yeah. What is he, what is, sort of describe him to me. What does he look like? I, I have a picture in my mind. Santa Claus with no, a short beard. that's not the picture I had in my mind. Yeah, yeah. A cleaner shaven Santa is yep. exactly what he looks like. Yeah, round Ooh. and jolly and... Yeah. Smile with a sparkle in his eye. Like, you would not know it. Like, he literally looks like he could be your grandfather, your father, your uncle. For some reason, I pictured him tall and lanky and looking a bit like Lurch. No, not at all. Yeah. (laughs) No, he. you would not get creepy vibes from him at all. You would get grandpa vibes from him. 
Oh, wow. That's, that's I, particularly frightening. It is because it makes it more real to me. Like mm-hmm. he could be the yeah. guy down the street. So as he got older, he was bused to Fenelon Falls Secondary School for secondary school. And this is where he met and started dating his future wife, Janice Campbell. He graduated in 1970 and then later graduated in a general business program. And then when he was 23, he married Janice. He had a few different jobs and our fellow Canadians will recognize some of these stores because some of them are no longer in business. But he worked for the Eaton's department store as a buyer's assistant in 1973. And this was in downtown Toronto. And at this time, just a few blocks away from where he worked, a gay village was emerging on Young Street between College and Wellesley Streets. So the same-sex behavior had just been decriminalized in 1969. So just a few years prior to this. In 1978, he left Eaton's to be a traveling salesman for McGregor Socks. And he later became a merchandising rep for Stanfield's Garment Company. So those all scream Canada to me, all of those names there. In the mid-70s, his father was diagnosed with a brain tumor and he was put into a nursing home. During this time, his mom became interested in another man, which caused Bruce to grow closer to his father. And this is really unusual because, well, it's not unusual that he grew closer to him as he was on his deathbed, but it was one of those things that when I was listening to this case first, I thought, oh, maybe it's his relationship with his father that causes him to go on Mm -hmm. and commit these murders. But he has closure with his dad here. And so that's kind of X'd out. It wouldn't be hatred. Like, you know, it's a lot of times serial killers, they have a hatred towards their mother. So that's why they kill women. But I'm assuming his victims are kind of like a John Wayne Gacy. They're young men, I'm assuming. Yeah. But Kim, I thought the same as you is that, oh, his relationship with his father is going to be what spurns him on. But this totally counts that out. Because he had time to have that closure closure to make amends with his father before he passed away. So it sounds like everything's going along normal. No mm-hmm. torturing of cats and no... No, nothing, which makes him so frightening. And we'll kind of talk a little bit about why we think he becomes a serial killer. So his mother died of cancer in 1978 and his father died in 1981. In 1979, Bruce and Janice moved into a house in Oshawa, Ontario. By 1981, they had a daughter and a son. At this time, he became very active in his church And we kind of thought maybe this was a way of him trying to avoid his same-sex attractions. He became super involved in all the church activities. So it wasn't until the late 90s that Bruce's life really began to change. So like you said, Kim, pretty normal up until now. In 1993, his job in the clothing industry ended. He began to have sexual affairs with men. Later, he came out to his wife, but they stayed living together. Probably to keep up appearances. And one of the reasons that they did stay together for a while is because they had started to experience a lot of financial difficulty. Partly this financial difficulty came because they were facing a lot of legal issues with their teenage son. He was obsessed with making obscene phone calls to women and they had to pay those legal fees. So paying the lawyer and the legal fees became a big expense for Bruce and his wife. Yeah, so signs with his son. Like, we're not 100% sure how his son turned out, but kind of (laughs) creepy. Well, a little bit. If he, so he, he was making enough obscene phone calls that he they actually tracked him down. Yeah. Yep. And, and charged him. 
Well, I guess this would have been before computers and smartphones, so all they would have had to do is star six nine or something, and no. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, he and you can press one too smart. when you. Yeah, and there was something you pressed too when you didn't want your number to show up. I don't remember what that was. It was star yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Well, the financial issues got so so big though that they actually had to mortgage their home for him in 1979. Yep, and so that same year, sorry. To, for the son, to pay off the legal bills for the son. Yep. Yes. So they had so, to mortgage their home 1979. And then by 1999, they had to actually declare bankruptcy. So it got really bad. Wow. So Bruce and his wife, actually, they ended up separating in 1997, the same year that they mortgaged their home. So things at this point are not going so well for Bruce. Bruce decided to move to Toronto as there was no gay community in Oshawa at that time. He frequented the bars of Church and Wellesley, so with Toronto's gay village, and he pursued a four-year relationship with a man. When they broke up and his divorce was finalized, he did actually see a psychiatrist, and he was prescribed Prozac for several months. So he did seek out some help. So eventually he started a landscaping company called Artistic Design. Soon he had dozens of clients and he did really well, so things were starting to look up. He was actually really good at landscaping. But we will be coming back to this landscaping business that he had. So brace yourself. Oh, great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so his first attack, which was actually nine years before the string of known murders, happened on Halloween in 2001, just a few weeks after his 50th birthday. He followed actor model Mark Henderson into his apartment. Henderson invited him in to see his Halloween costume. And apparently Bruce often carried an iron pipe with him. And this is the part that I find so hilarious. Because yeah. who carries an iron pipe around with them? Like, what, in his pocket? It's a are, pipe in my pocket. Are you happy, happy to see me or is that a pipe in your pants? <laughs> Just so bizarre. And what did he need this iron pipe for? Why was he carrying it around with him all the time? Yeah. Well, and it would be heavy. Yeah. I mean, you think your mom purse is heavy. Imagine carrying around an iron <laughs> pipe. That's true. My imagination of it was that it was up his sleeve so he could just whip that baby out anytime he needed it. <laughs> well, you it's just never release. know when it's going to come in handy. Right? Yeah, we just found that so bizarre, but it was noted that he carried this iron pipe with him. So during this attack, as he's following Mark into his apartment, Bruce pulls out this pipe and he strikes Henderson several times from behind. Henderson tried to fight back before losing consciousness. When Henderson woke, he called 911 and was taken to St. Michael's Hospital. He suffered multiple injuries to the back of his head and his body, and he needed stitches on the back of his head as well as his fingers. Which to me sounds like defensive wounds. Mm -hmm. So he just whacked him over the head and then just left? Yeah, he started hitting him from behind over his head and his body and... So there was Henderson no had put his hands up or anything, just nothing. Yeah. him with his, his pipe and. Yeah. And it was so severe that Henderson actually needed six weeks of physiotherapy afterwards. So he got oh. him really good. Surprisingly, do you remember when I told you that Bruce was a tattletale? Yeah. <laughs> well, he turned himself in not long oh, after the attack. <laughs> yeah. So he, he tattled on himself. <laughs> good. Good for him. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is where we summarize. Was he trying to fight off the sexual urges that he was feeling? Was he taking it out on other homosexual men? Like, why was he do? Why was he such a frequent goer to church? He was 
going to therapy at this time. Was this after his four-year relationship that he had with yes. the man? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It was after. And so it's he- after his four-year re- relationship that he goes to the psychiatrist as well. It is, yeah, when mm-hmm. they when they break up. It's strange. It is but so he strange. Is, he is trying to, like, he's tattletailing on himself, and so was this, like, this cry for help? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, he, obviously there was remorse. Yeah. 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 And when questioned about it, he said that he didn't remember the incident. But that's super suspicious. Yeah. Because then yeah, why did like he don't remember it? But I'm, I'm I did something, but I don't remember it. Yeah. So we kind of yeah. called BS on that because how did he know to yeah. turn himself in? How did he know he exactly. did it if he doesn't remember? On April 11th, 2003, he was given a conditional sentence of 729 days. And so I'm just going to quickly explain what that conditional sentence means. Because that's a weird sentence. Mm hmm. Okay, so in this sentence, his further charge of carrying a concealed weapon was withdrawn. So the Crown Attorney originally wanted jail time, but agreed to conditional sentencing after psychiatric and pre-sentencing reports said that he was unlikely to re-offend. How wrong were they? Yeah, if they only knew. Well, and with such a random crime, why, why would they even think that he wouldn't do that again? Right? So the victim, Henderson, was too traumatized to submit a victim impact statement for sentencing. And really, who can blame him? Yeah, he was probably traumatized. Bruce is quoted saying this, quote, Well, I just want to apologize to the court for what happened. Not knowing what's going to happen and what happened to me, I'd like to apologize to the victim. And I'm sorry for all the pain and anguish I've caused him. So we weren't sure how sincere that is. And I mean, if we think about it, we've all had a really rough year and a half and we don't go around hitting people with pipes. (laughs) Could you imagine? (laughs) Yeah. Well, sorry, I've had a rough year. (laughs) So have we all. They thought that his actions might have been in part a result of him taking his anti-seizure medication with amyl nitrate, which is a muscle relaxer sometimes taken recreationally before having sex. So he avoided prison. His first year of sentencing was under house arrest followed by a six-month curfew and only three years of probation. He was barred from church in Wellesley except for work and medical appointments. He had to stay 10 meters, or 33 feet, away from his victim's home and workplace. He wasn't allowed to spend time with male prostitutes. He was forbidden to possess firearms for 10 years. But he uses a lead pipe. So what's that going to do? Yeah, he ends up murdering people without without guns anyway. He couldn't purchase... Well, it's involved. No spoilers. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) We'll get there. (laughs) That's what I always have to tell Melissa. We'll get there. I'm always wanting to jump to the end. (laughs) He couldn't purchase, possess, or consume drugs without a prescription. He had to submit DNA to a database, which didn't really help the investigation at first because there was no bodies when he starts killing. Hmm. He had to have psychological and psychiatric counseling that included anger management. And at sentencing, the judge quoted saying... It sounds to me like you're a pretty good person. And it sounds to me like you're not going to be back here anyway. Oops. Which is so ironic. Yeah. A pretty good person who carries a lead pipe around with them. Right? And saying, I don't think you're going to be back here anyway. Anyway, And we thought, what does that judge think after the fact when he is back? Yeah. But this is the worst part, I think. Yeah. In 2014, he was granted a record suspension and the conviction was expunged from his record. So this attack would not appear in a criminal record check on him anymore. 
Wow. So he could go over the border and all that stuff. Yep. Like yeah. And when like it never pol- happened. Right. right. And when police look into him later as a he, suspect. Yeah. He has a clean record. None wow. of his prior Imagine offenses how that, show up. How Anderson feels about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunately. Yeah. When I said he got a slap on the wrist, that is really all that he got. Six for weeks. someone that spent six weeks in physiotherapy, yeah. that is a slap in the face for the victim. And for too sure. traumatized to even give a victim impact statement. Yeah. yeah. So we'll fast forward seven years from when he got his sentencing and things start to take a much darker turn. And I just wanted to know that there are reports of alleged assaults during those seven years, but no charges were laid. And when there's no charges or convictions, they don't show up yeah. on your record. That's yeah, right. Exactly. So in 2002, while the assault case was still in court, he registered with Recon, a gay fetish dating site for men into BDSM. He was really into the rough stuff. (laughs) His profile noted that he was interested in submissive men of all ages. He liked to be the dominator. He also joined lots of other gay dating sites like Silver Daddies, Man Jam, Grinder. Melissa likes these names. Man Jam. (laughs) Man Jam. That's the one that gets me every time, Kim. Terrible. (laughs) So he's like bad Santa. Oh, he is bad Santa. Yes. Um, Bear 411, Bear Forest, Scruff, Daddy Hunt. You'll like this next one. Squirt. (laughs) And Growler. So he's active on all of these gay dating sites as a dominator. He used variations of the name Silver Fox for his username on these sites. He started to get a reputation within the gay community for being rough and violent. There was an incident where he was asked to leave a coffee house in the gay village and he got extremely angry. He knocked all the glasses off the table and started yelling homophobic comments. Which is so odd, right? Mm -hmm. Because his few... I don't know. We just felt like, could this, could his future murders have been a way of him trying to kill the gay within himself? Yeah. That's kind of what it sounds like that he was definitely a lot of self-hatred. Yeah. Yeah. But at this point in time, he's kind of just, he's no longer hiding it. He's off the rails and into it. So clearly entrenched. Well, he is online at night, but probably not like there's probably like Jekyll and Hyde, right? There's like daytime, Bruce and then nighttime manjam Bruce. So this anger and violence soon escalated into murder and he had a clear victim type. He targeted vulnerable individuals that he believed no one would miss. They were all gay men. Most of them were immigrants to Canada and many of those living double lives, hiding their sexuality or they were homeless. Nearly all were in their 40s and 50s, so they weren't super young men. And most were of Middle Eastern or South Asian descent. Most had beards and frequented a leather bar called the Black Eagle. He would frequent bars in the gay village, taking note of the clientele. So basically hunting for a victim. He would lure his victims to his apartment under the pretense of submissive sex. It would start off consensual, but would end up with him strangling his victims to death. He would strangle them with a rope tightened using a metal bar. And so this is where we thought, could it be the same bar from his first attack? It's his trusty lead pipe. Once they were dead, he would perform sexual acts with the bodies. He would take photographs once they were dead. He saved the digital photos to be able to relive his crimes. 
He even wrapped one of them in a fur coat and placed a cigar in his mouth for the photo. And he often would shave their heads or their beards off. He also collected mementos, jewelry, the facial hair that he had shaved off, and items of clothing. Sounds just so degrading to them. Oh, totally. He has quite a few victims, and I'm going to talk about the first three here, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about the task force that was launched for these three victims, and then I'll go into the other victims, the remaining ones. So the first to go missing was Skanda Navratnam. He was age 40, and he was last seen September 6, 2010, In the early morning, leaving Zippers, which is a gay bar with an unknown man. He was romantically involved with Bruce and even worked for him in 2008. In the landscaping company, right? Yeah, in his company. Mm -hmm. And had no family in Canada. So he fit his profile perfect that nobody would be missing him. Second was Bazir Fozzie. He was age 42 and he was last seen December 28, 2010, leaving his work. But bank records put him at the Black Eagle Bar and Steamworks Bathhouse that same night. He was an immigrant from Afghanistan. He kept his gay life hidden from his family, including from his wife and kids. A colleague said that he had been working overtime to make sure his two daughters had a nice Christmas, because he was last seen just a few days after Christmas that year. And third was Mahid Kahan. He was 58 years old, and he was last seen October 18th, 2012, in the gay village near Young Street and Alexander Street. He was reported by his adult son, and he was an immigrant of of Afghanistan. He fled to Canada with his wife and children in the late 80s, but had since divorced his wife. He was the son of a Muslim cleric and had not come out to his family, and he had romantically pursued Bruce MacArthur as well. So at this point, the Toronto police launched a task force dubbed Project Houston. They had no real leads of what happened to these first three men. In 2018, W5 reported that a man had posted on a cannibal website, Zombie and Meat, in 2012 that he had killed and eaten a man in Toronto. This is what led to the formation of Project Houston. An anonymous tip linked Bruce to Skanda and Mahid, which led police to question him. So Bruce admitted to knowing both men and interacted regularly with Skanda at a gay bar, but denied being in a relationship with them. He also admitted to employing Mahid and having a sexual relationship with him, but said he had broken it off. So Project Houston unfortunately ended with no evidence linked to the disappearances, no reasons to conclude that crimes had been committed or that there were any viable suspects. Hmm. In a 2016 case summary, there was still nothing to explain what had happened to these men. There were no bodies. Which I always find it interesting. I wonder if his victims had been women, if they would have searched them out for longer periods of time. But was it because these were gay men that the task force just kind of closed up? They're like, oh, we can't really find anybody. So it doesn't seem like they dug too deeply. No. Well, and it would be the same thing if they were sex workers, women that were sex workers. For sure. Yeah, we often talk about that as well. did Did they link the disappearances and think that something was happening? Or was it only because this weird cannibal site had said that had mentioned 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But there was enough connection between Bruce and two of the victims at the time yeah. police to question him. Yeah, and, and they did, but he had a clean record and they believe Bruce. Right, because he's Santa Claus. That's right. <laughs> and I think this is where he ramps up too, isn't it? Yeah. Because he's given the courage that, oh, the police actually questioned me and I got away with it. Yeah, because yeah. I have a clean record. No one's yeah. going to suspect me. So next to go missing is Sharush Mamoudi. He was age 50, and he was last seen August 14th, 2015, near his home in the South Cedarbury neighborhood. He was a manufacturing plant worker, and he lived with his wife. He was a refugee from Iran, and he had no other family in Canada until he met his wife. He was originally connected to the gay scene, but he hid it from his family. Nobody knew. He had had a four-year relationship with a transgender woman before meeting his wife. These next two were never reported missing, but were found with the remains of the others, and I wanted to list them chronologically, so I'm going to add these next ones in here. So Karushna Kumar Kanagaratnam was 37. He was a refugee from Sri Lanka. When his deportation order was given, he went into hiding. So he was really hard to report missing because he was hiding. Mm -hmm. He worked as a cleaner and a mover, and Bruce killed him on or about January 6, 2016. Dean Lissowick was age 43 or 44. He was a resident of Toronto Shelter System, so there's not as much information about him. But they remembered him as being very respectful. He had worked as a sex worker, but was working more as a cleaner or a laborer. So the next victim, Salim Essen, um, he was age 44, but he was not reported missing until April 20th. He was a Turkish citizen who came to Canada to be with a partner he had met in Turkey. And then his last victim was Andrew Kinsman. He was age 49. He was last seen June 28, 2017, near his residence south of the gay village. He had been seen carrying bags of debris on one of Bruce's landscaping projects in 2011. So he had worked for him a little bit as well. Oh, knowing what's going to happen or knowing the outcome of this case, it just creeps me out that he was he could have been carrying bags of body parts. He could have been. He had been in a sexual relationship with Bruce for some time, so he was openly gay. He always notified family or friends wherever he was going. He was active on social media, but investigators found found his cell phone was turned off the day he disappeared. And this is just what they know. Yeah. This is just what yeah. we know of because he's picking these men that are vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Most of their families don't know that they're gay or, you know, one was yeah. homeless, one was hiding yeah. so he wouldn't be deported. And so there could have been many more. These are only mm -hmm. the bodies that are found. Right. Mm -hmm. 
At the end of 2017, police, the Toronto police created a new task force called Project Prism to investigate the disappearance of Andrew and Salim. They also looked for connections to Project Houston. The gay community did not feel safe and they were voicing their concerns. We don't go into a lot of it, but this caused quite the uproar in Toronto at the time. Police said that Andrew's disappearance was central because he was reported missing within 72 hours of disappearing. The community thought it was because he was a white victim, unlike the majority of the other victims. So this was another thing that caused uproar in Toronto because it wasn't until Bruce had murdered a white man that the police really got involved. And started taking it seriously. Mm -hmm. Which could be true. (laughs) No, never. (laughs) That doesn't happen in Canada. (laughs) Police found the name Bruce written on Andrew's calendar for June 26, the same day that he was last seen. So this is that connecting evidence that they find. Surveillance video outside Andrew's residence showed a person matching Bruce's appearance driving a red 2004 Dodge Caravan. And this is the type of vehicle that Bruce was driving at the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. There were 6,000 similar models in Toronto, but only five were registered to a person named Bruce. They matched the van to a surveillance video outside of Bruce's apartment, but it was no longer at his residence. They later found the vehicle at a shop and were able to find trace amounts of blood inside. The blood was Andrew's, and they also found DNA from Salim Essen. Police were able to then get a warrant to search Bruce's apartment. Eventually, they got a partial download from Bruce's computer. There were deleted files of post-mortem photos of the victims. Round-the-clock surveillance was put on Bruce with instructions to immediately arrest him if he was seen alone with anyone. And I'm not sure, why wasn't he arrested right away? Like, they had all yeah, that evidence like already against him. Yeah, dead body. Yeah. Well, and DNA evidence in his vehicle with a clear yeah, connection to the missing person. If he happens to be with someone. Yeah. Which yeah. we felt that that was really unusual as well. So, But they put round-the-clock surveillance, and maybe they wanted to make sure that they had hard evidence on him. Well, catching him in the act, right, is really yeah. what's going to prove and take yeah, him to court. Yeah, but catching and... <laughs> you can't, like, just because he walks out of a bar or something with someone doesn't make that the smoking gun, right? So what do they do? They wait until he's, like, got his hands around someone's neck or he pulls out his Absolutely. lead pipe? Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly what happens, Kim. So they actually do catch him on the act, in the act. So on January 18th, 2018, police saw a young man enter Bruce's apartment. Police entered the apartment and found a man restrained on a bed, on Bruce's bed. Bruce was in the process of taping his mouth shut when the police entered. So they got there just in the nick of time. Mm -hmm. So Bruce was finally arrested at age 66. He was first charged with two counts of first-degree murder for the presumed deaths of Andrew Kinsman and Salim Essen. The man they saved was from the Middle East. He was married, but not out to his family. He met Bruce on one of those dating apps. They had met a few times before to have sex. This time, he agreed to be handcuffed to Bruce's bed, but things were taking a dark turn when police entered. And you can watch videos and read statements from other victims of his who survived Bruce's attacks online. There's just not enough time to go into them on one podcast. You could do a whole season on how many victims he had. Definitely. Part of the reason Bruce went so long without being caught was because each victim was classified as a missing person. At this time, Toronto did not have a specialized missing persons task force. Which is just so crazy for the size of Toronto that it is. 
But it doesn't have a dedicated task force to missing people. At that time, they yeah. didn't. Yeah. And no bodies were found. But eventually they found them all. That impaired their investigation as well because they just thought, oh, they're missing. They're grown men. You know, maybe they just moved or who knows, right? Because mm-hmm. no bodies had been found before this. So remember that landscaping business that Bruce had? Mm-hmm. Well, once he was done with his victims, he would do his photo shoot, have sex with their bodies, you know, whatever he wanted to do. He would dismember their bodies and buried their body pieces in the gardens and planters of his client's residence. Oh, no. Yeah. And you can hear, because it's one residence that he buries them. In particular. Yeah, Yeah, that they find all these body parts. And you can see interviews even with the police and the media interviewing her, whose house that this was found at. So, okay. They thought they were getting a deal. Yeah. (laughs) So... Okay, so he dismembered their body in his apartment? Yeah, he would dismember them, and then he would take the pieces to this residence, and he would put them in their planters or bury them in the garden. So, like, just, like, a an arm or something like that, like, just, like... Yeah, whatever he soil. could make, yeah. Just carry them to the site in those black hefty bags that that one guy was carrying. Yeah. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And nobody was the wiser. Nope. That's crazy. Do they know what he used to dismember the bodies? Like, are we talking like a chainsaw? Like, you think the neighbors would have... <laughs> like, his no. apartment must have been a holy mess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But by the time you get to your eighth victim, and he was very ritualistic, he would have had a yeah. whole method that he followed. But he's also older, too. And, like, when a when a person dies, they, they literally become dead weight. Yeah, but only for so much time, right? Yeah. You can wait that out. I guess that's true. And then, well, once they're in pieces, maybe they're not nearly as heavy if you're only... Yeah. Well, he'd work up the strength. He's carrying this lead pipe, remember, with him everywhere he goes. (laughs) (laughs) He's That's why he was carrying it. It (laughs) He was working out. And remember, he owned a landscaping business. So he wasn't... He didn't have a desk job. Yeah, he was active. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so he just put them in manageable size pieces to be able to take them to his client's residence. So clearly his, the, some of his clients, they weren't clients that had dogs or something that was digging up the... I mean, I can't even keep my cats out of my plants. I don't... Right? Well, I assume not. They... It was mainly this one residence. It belonged to Karen Fraser and Ron Smith. It was a it was a Mallory Crescent residence in the Leaside neighborhood of Toronto, and they had arranged for Bruce to store his tools and his Christmas decorations in their garage in place for the garden work. He figured, well, if I can store my tools there, I can maybe store my body parts there. Yeah. yeah. I'm not sure they realized what kind of agreement they were getting into with him. Yeah. But then this way, too, he didn't really have to worry. He did a really good job there. He wasn't worried about losing that client's business because he wasn't charging them and he, he was doing trade right to store all his yeah. stuff there and he knew nobody else would be digging in the gardens then because he did all the work there yeah so police would find victims hair in the shed of that property that hair that he had shaved off the big planters had to be thawed because they were frozen to the ground cadaver dogs had a hard time picking up scents since the earth frozen thanks to our canadian winters yeah, but there was one cadaver dog that stood out in, protect- in particular. His name was Major, and he had a special sense that actually um, allowed him to alert his partner to where it, the body parts were in one particular p- 
planter, even though they were frozen solid. Yeah, police were focusing more on the yard area, but Major just yeah. kept going back to these planters. And that's what caused them to find, to take in these planters, thaw them out and find these remains. And so it was this one particular dog that kept on going back to these planters. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, Can we talk about this? He's a good boy. He is so good. We talk about him in another case. He's pivotal in helping to solve another case that we cover. It's not out yet. It's not out yet. That's <laughs> it coming. will be by this time. Yeah, but yeah. Is, by, by this time it'll be, yeah. Another case that we did at the end of November. So because of Major, police brought in big heaters to start thawing the ground and thawing those planters. On April 16th, 2018, Bruce MacArthur was charged with the final and eighth charge of first-degree murder after Karushna had finally been identified via his post-mortem photo. And it's really rare for police to release a post-mortem photo, but oh, yeah, they actually needed it to identify him. last resort for sure, I bet. Yeah. yeah, but it was how they were able to identify him. And what I find shocking about this case is even though it was the largest forensic investigation at that time, the media didn't report on it a lot. There's still lots of people that don't know about it. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I didn't know much about it. I kind of remember some murmurings about um, when you were talking about um, some of the gay men in, Tr- in the Toronto area that were going missing and that the, the they didn't feel that the police were doing enough about it. I kind of remember something about that but it I think it was before they discovered the planter boxes because I yeah I didn't mm-hmm. know that well it was those murmurings that led them to create the task force to look into them further mm. yeah because there was quite, quite the uproar mm-hmm. in Toronto at the time so in Bruce fashion he pled guilty to all eight murders because he's a tattletale oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And honestly, what can you say at that point? Yeah. You find all this evidence in his home, yeah. in his shed, where just, he works. Yeah, it's not mine. I was just hiding it for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so he was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in 25 years. So the really? judge took into account his age and only gave him one life sentence. Which is so crazy and does not seem like justice at all he, to those sorry, other victims. 66 at the time of sentencing? Uh, yes. I need a calculator. Hold on, I got a calculator. Okay. You got a calculator, Kim. <laughs> he was sixty-seven. Chances oh. are he's going. He is going to die in prison. But I yeah. think society-wise, they like to see the like twenty-five years, no eligibility for fifty. Just you know. Yeah, or I mean, he should have got twenty-five years for each victim. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's not, not like just one. Not like that sentence changes how much time he's actually going to do in jail. You're right. 25 years will take him probably till he's dead. It should be eight life sentences. Yeah. Yeah. That's how we feel. Yeah. Even if it is just on paper, it doesn't matter. That's right. It still is an acknowledgement of those victims lives. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I did the math because his birthday wasn't until October. So he was 66. So he will be eligible for parole when he's 91. There was no need to have a trial since he had pled guilty, and it was noted that he spared the families of the victims from a trial. Justice John McMahon told the court while delivering his sentence, quote, I am satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that these men died a slow and painful death by lig- ligature strangulation for the sexual gratification of Mr. MacArthur. All or most of the victims were vulnerable individuals who were lured to their deaths no doubt on the promise of consensual sexual activity. The accused exploited his victims' vulnerabilities. 
whether they involved immigration concerns, mental health challenges, or people living a secretive double life. Criminologist and Western University professor Michael Arntfield said, So this kind of goes into, Kim, where you were saying, like, how did he do this over and over? It would have been so messy. But this criminologist actually has an answer for that or a suspicion about that. Said that the alleged method of disposal suggested a sophisticated killer who had developed his craft. And as most serial killers begin in their 20s, the crime could go back several decades and represent the longest run of a serial killer on record. And how well he disposed of their bodies, how well he cut it up, or sorry, how well he dismembered his the bodies really does point to that. Mm-hmm. He had perfected yeah. his art. Yeah, his craft was meticulous. Yeah. He was described as a friendly, cheerful guy, a doting grandfather even. He had a decent childhood. Karen Fraser, from the house that he had stashed all the body parts, she quoted, he was the best friend, neighbor, relative, or anyone could want. His Facebook was filled with recipe videos, cat pictures, and photos of his children and grandchildren. Also relaxed pictures of himself on vacation and at dinner parties. So this is especially scary to me because on paper, there is no reason for him to have grown up to become this monster. And that's well, so and disturbing. That he has children and grandchildren. But one of the most disturbing parts that I discovered is that Bruce worked during the holidays as a mall Santa. Oh, of course he did. <laughs> yep. Everyone said that he was perfect for the part, but can you even imagine? Ugh. And we were talking about this earlier, realizing that maybe you had pictures displayed in your home or inside your family photo albums of your child or children sitting on Santa's knee, having no idea that they were actually sitting on the thick, disgusting, dirtbag serial killer. It's so crazy. Uh, And I think we all have those uh, photos of when our kids like did not want to sit on Santa's knee, like screaming to get away and you force them to sit there. (laughs) That's right. Children, we should teach them. Trust your instincts. There's something wrong with this guy. Yeah. So this this stuff could have happened back, started sort of back in the late 70s, which is kind of like when all the serial killers were doing their thing because there wasn't the DNA. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if he was yeah. picking marginalized people in the 70s, they would have been even more marginalized. So. Absolutely. Yeah. So he very much well could have had many, many victims. Yeah. They highly suspect that he had started, you know, maybe in his 20s. So he could have been for like four decades, over 40 years, murdering yeah. people. And if you look at his his craft and Mm -hmm. learning how to dismember them the less messy way possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's what that criminologist was was pointing out. But yeah, that was a fascinating story. He's a dirtbag human, dirtbag Santa. Yeah. Beware of mall Santas. That's what we learned from this one. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I think I've always been a little creeped out by mall Santas. That one, no, that one was a really good one, and I did not know, I did not know that. Yeah. And I don't think I'll ever look at a gardener the same way. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story with me. Well, thank you so much for for having us. Yeah, I appreciate you guys coming on, and I look forward to sharing story on your podcast. Yeah, we are really looking forward. 
We just started in August. Yeah, so did I. How do you find not getting too roped into the stories? Like, what do you got to kind of do to sort of clear your head from the from the dirt bagness? Oh, sometimes it's difficult. And sometimes I find too that, like Christy and I were just talking about this, this last case that I did, I had 57 pages of just notes. And then to try and get that down onto a case, but that's like 57 pages of all encompassing. That's where you're spending all your energy. And then so to to have a mental brain shower, that's what you called it on one of our last episodes, right, Christy? Yeah. 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 I felt like my brain needed a shower after I was done with this one guy that we had Issei Sagawa is his name. And yeah, normally I'm not too bothered, but I have noticed that I've had to, you know, we, we talk about like, oh, maybe we need to like watch a comedy Parks and Rec <laughs> yeah. or, you know, because normally I watch a lot of true crime documentaries. I listen mm-hmm. to a lot of true crime podcasts and then I'm mm-hmm. listening to Melissa every other week. Tell me about a case and I'm presenting a case and you know, and then yeah. we're editing those cases and we spend a long time with them. Sometimes we're reading books about them. So it can be a lot. So I yeah. do find sometimes yeah. we need to take those little breaks. The, the little break. Yeah. No, my spouse yeah. always refers to, refers to every time he walks in, he goes, oh, are you listening to another murder, death, kill thing? And I'm like, oh, pretty much. <laughs> yep. That's yep. what we do. <laughs> I yeah. passed my sister-in-law at the pharmacy the other day and I had my ear, like my earphones in and she's like, oh, are you doing research? I was like, yep, because <laughs> this is what I do all the time. Mm-hmm. But it is so true. And I find um, the killer's confessions, like when they have taped recordings of confessions, those are mm-hmm. so disturbing. Like the one that I, I just did this week had a five hour confession and just yeah. his voice begins to grate on you. Yeah, it's different when you're reading about it on paper or in the court documents, but when you're actually hearing their voice describe what they did and some of the most disturbing part is their justification for it yeah, or yeah. them wanting sympathy for it is so yeah. difficult to take. Yeah. yeah, it is. It does get difficult. Are your spouses into uh, true crime as well or are you kind of on your own with it? With it where they're like, oh, I don't get it. No, we're totally on our own. That's why we found yeah. each other. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> You have to find a morbid friend and then you stick with them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because I think uh, um, Tim is my partner and he, he was getting tired of every night coming home from work and me saying, so I was listening to this podcast and you've got to hear this murder. And he's like, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> There's so long reaching repercussions to it for not just for the victim themselves, but for their families and their friends and especially if they were somebody like say somebody that was homeless or struggling with drug addiction, it it feels almost like their life only meant something to that person. And it, it does make, when we talk about it and we discuss the issues that kind of lead into what happens with some of these murders, I don't know, it kind of gives the victim's story some substance, right? Of that their death will mean something. If we can, even in the littlest bit, talk about the issues. Yep. Yeah, talk about the issues and talk about and talk about them too. Like, like, like you said, from a from a family member, I enjoy talking about Taylor and 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 who she was, and and mm-hmm. I'm happy to to talk about her. And I think that a lot of a lot of people feel that way. They just want to hear their their name said. You know, just just say their name for sure. Mm-hmm. Again, thank you so much. Well, I'm glad we've done this collab together because we're both new and you know we're all starting out and I think it's good to support each other 
I hope you all enjoyed today's episode with Melissa and Christy. Their podcast is Buried Motives, and you can find them on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. They are also on Instagram and Facebook, and you can email them at buriedmotives at gmail.com. I'll be back again next week, all by my lonesome, for another gripping case. Thanks so much for listening. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.